Once, years ago, I was <clears throat> hiking on snowshoes in the forest of Maine, and I came over a knoll in the forest, and I came face to face about 20 feet away with a deer. And as soon as I came into view over the knoll, the deer stopped, stood still, and looked at me. And I stopped still and looked at it. And we stood there for five, ten minutes, just watching each other, watch each other. And this deer was the epitome of tranquil, calm, and extraordinarily alert. You could see its ears flicking to catch any sound. Its eyes were uh, deep pools of darkness. Its tail was just flickering to catch any whatever they catch. And <laughs> after the shock of whatever the mo my movement coming over the hill was, after 10 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever it was, then very, very carefully, mindfully appearing, it started to again walk and start browsing, but it was extraordinarily vigilant to any, everything in its environment. In some ways, it was an extraordinary meeting of what raw wakefulness, without thinking, is like. Extraordinary sensory aliveness. And yet there was this some very grounded, tranquil, calm <coughs> presence also. There was no doubt that the deer was highly energized, but not anxious. It felt as if the deer was quite at ease with whatever might happen next. And in some ways, our practice is like this. Our practice is like we are stalking ourself. Carefully moving through our day, the movements of our day, the activities, the behaviors, in order to catch ourselves, to just be with every flicker of our senses. To be unboundaried in our freedom, like that deer is. This 
balance of tranquility and alertness is the foundation of our practice. And all of our difficulties with practice come from an imbalance in tranquility or alertness. With a foundation of calmness, stillness, energy, wakefulness, we are mindful. So what is this mindfulness that we talk about? There are a few qualities of mindfulness I want to mention because it helps to point to our experience here and what prevents mindfulness or what distracts us from being tranquilly alert. Mindfulness is the power of observation. The ability to see, not only with our eyes, but with our inner eye, the mind, to be undistracted from what is actually taking place in the body, in the mind, in our environment. And that ability to see requires that we be connected to, intimately touching this present moment, allowing ourselves to be touched by this moment. Where there is no separation between we and it whatever this moment is. One helpful attitude that cultivates this clarity of seeing, of observation, is to ask yourself the question in each moment of mindfulness, what is this? What is this moment? To become interested enough to acknowledge, to recognize, and to acknowledge to ourself that this is the experience. It may be pleasant, it may be unpleasant, it may be physical, it may be mental, but nevertheless, it's this moment's experience on a moment-to-moment basis. In order to cultivate this power of observation as we're trying to do here moment after moment, hour after hour, day after day, it takes a lot of diligence. It takes a lot of remembering that's what we're doing here. As Joseph mentioned the other night, it's not difficult to be mindful. It's difficult to remember to be mindful. 
And if someone is standing right over your shoulder and saying, note that, be aware of that, be mindful of that, don't get distracted by this, we probably would do a little better. We'd probably hate that person at the end of the hour, but (laughs) nevertheless, we might be a little more mindful. So mindfulness has this quality of remembering, not obsessive memorying, but of remembering to be present, to be here for our life. One time, years ago, when I first started working with Saito Upandita, I, my first three months with him was torture. And <laughs> it was not easy. And somewhere in the middle of my retreat, in just utter frustration and discouragement, I blurted out to him in an interview, well, what are we supposed to be doing here anyway? Remembering our past lives or something? And he said, no, remembering this life. (laughs) Remembering this life is what mindfulness is. Remembering to be present for our life in this moment. (coughs) Observing, remembering. There's also a certain quality of diligence, continuity. In the development of mindfulness, where we are like the deer in the forest, not taking a break to browse when something unknown is near and the next moment is unknown. It's said that mindfulness acts as an inward mentor, serves the role of an inward mentor, where through our careful observation, mindfulness offers counsel and advice, guiding us to know what is true for us, what is real for us. It points out the truth, like a mentor, just showing us, well, this is, this is what you have to deal with. And we may not like what our mentor asks us to acknowledge, just as we may not appreciate what mindfulness brings into view. Someone came to uh, interview today, group today, and very humbly and energetically acknowledged how much anger they had, just frothing with anger the whole day about everything at the retreat. And there was some discouragement in that experience. And I I pointed out to her that I was happy to hear that she was being mindful of her anger. And it took a while for her to see that, oh, 
Yes, I am mindful of what's going on. I just don't like it. But that, that's another step, bringing what you don't like into balance. But the first step of mindfulness is working fine. Being aware of what's actually going on. When we see the truth, the moment's truth, we're not deceived by the appearances, by our imagination. We're not enchanted by our hopes, our wishes, our aspirations, our affirmations. But we're seeing things as they really are. And so we come to a trust in our own experience. There's an, an inner authority being cultivated with mindfulness. And with that, we then have to make choices. We have to make decisions of how we're going to move through our life, through our day, through our sitting, through our walking. Mindfulness sees the whole picture. It doesn't just focus on this narrow, self-interested perspective, but it sees the whole picture. Another woman on retreat came in and after some weeks of being caught in her own personal dramas pretty intensely, came in and acknowledged how spacious she felt. Acknowledging that mindfulness gave her a spaciousness with her own personal hysteria. <laughs> I like that uh, image of, yeah, I still have my personal hysteria, but mindfulness gives me a lot of space around it. And I think we can, even in these few days, begin to see how much space mindfulness makes in a moment, in a day. <coughs> Kalo Rinpoche said, we live in illusion in the appearance of things. We live in a dream we begin to see how much of the time here we actually spend lost in a dream, in a fantasy, spaced out, spaced in, not present. And when we're not spaced out, not lost, not daydreaming, we're often narrating to ourselves our life. The past, the future, how we hope it'll be, what we want it to be. And occasionally, we check in with how it really is. That personal history narration that we discover here is a habit that we have cultivated for as long as we've been living. It is a distortion of reality. It's as if we're bewitched. 
we're enchanted, we're, under, we're cast under a spell by this narration of my life that's going on. When we come out from under this illusion, when mindfulness forces the truth to be seen, and we come out from this illusion, we feel disillusioned. Feeling disillusioned with ourselves, our teachers, our expectations, our jobs, our partners, our life, doesn't feel so good. Nevertheless, when we come out from illusion, we come into a trust, a knowledge, an assurance, and a truth. Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda how to stop the internal dialogue. One Zen master teaches or encourages his students to cut thinking mind. Mindfulness is the tool to do that, to bring us out of our internal narration. Thoreau wrote, By a conscious effort of the mind, we can stand aloof of all things, and all things go by us like a torrent. However intense our experience, I am conscious of the presence of a part of me which is the spectator, sharing no experience but taking note of it, and that is no more I than it is you. And we all get a taste of that spectator spaciousness with the drama of our own life, with the hysteria, our own personal hysteria through practicing this mindfulness. When I talk about tranquil alertness, it's something of an oxymoron. How can we be tranquil and alert? How can we be dynamically still? And yet, we see that in practice, that's the instruction, that's the guidance to take a posture of stillness and remain alert. When that balance of tranquility and alertness is established, the mind is undistracted. There is an ease and presence of mind with whatever is happening. But when that ease is broken by an imbalance in the tranquility or the alertness, then a sense of struggle, a sense of dissonance, a sense of discord appears in the heart, in the mind. This discord, this dissonance, this sense of struggle is bound to happen. 
not because we're doing something wrong, not because we haven't understood the instructions, not because we're an inherently bad or ineffectual person, but because they are deeply conditioned habits. And whatever we have done habitually for weeks, years, and possibly lifetimes is not going to stop overnight. Habits have a power of their own. And even though we bring our energy and intention and attention to the present moment, sometimes it's overwhelmed by the power of habit. The Buddha, over the course of his many years of teaching, spoke to many different kinds of people, monks and nuns and laymen and laywomen of all classes and strata in life, all occupations. And of all that the Buddha spoke, some consider the discourse on mindfulness to be the most important. And in it, the Buddha says, for the purification of beings, for the purification of our minds, for overcoming sorrow, distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the realization of Nibbana or the liberated mind, one should abide ardent, clearly aware, and mindful of the arising and vanishing of the four foundations of mindfulness. These difficult disturbances, habitual reactive patterns in the mind, anger, frustration, disappointment, jealousy, despair, wanting, not wanting, these habitual reactions of the mind are one of the foundations of mindfulness. They are the very experience, the very place, the very time upon which to establish mindfulness. The Buddha didn't say, after you get rid of all your anger, all your desire, all your jealousy, envy, fear, depression, despair, after you get rid of all that, then you can be mindful. No. He said, when you feel these feelings, when you feel these emotions, when you experience these mental states, that is the very place, the very time, to establish mindfulness, to be aware, to notice, and to be free from. Our challenge in practice, our assignment, so to speak, is to recognize these habits, these mental states, these emotions. And in the process to develop an awareness of them and ultimately freedom. Each of us has our own personal experience 
of these difficulties. And in the first few days, it seems like that's all we're experiencing. <coughs> Kamala spoke last night about the hindrances, sleepiness, doubt, aversion, desire, restlessness. And they all come in innumerable forms, manifestations. When these difficulties arise in the mind, it's as if they color the mind. They act like a filter over the mind so that what we see through the filter is distorted. Whether it's the red filter of aversion or the green filter of desire or whatever it is, Whatever we see, when that filter is over the mind, we will relate to with that emotion, with that mental state. Our practice is to transform these difficulties in practice into vehicles for mindfulness. And in this process or in this transformation, there are five steps, five stages that I want to mention. First, we have to recognize them. If we don't recognize what filter is over the mind, we can't apply any appropriate skill, technique, understanding to it, and we will continue to be misled by it. So the first step in our practice to begin working with any difficulty is to recognize it, to name it. Secondly, once we recognize what is happening, we have to exercise some restraint so that we don't just act it out. All of these mental states come with, of course, a lot of energy. And it is very easy to just act out this mental state. So when anger arises in the mind, we just you know, we get angry, we say something, we do something, we uh, chatter away in the mind, acting out that anger, getting rid of it, dissipating its energy, not really seeing it, not really dealing with it, getting away from it. And so too with the other difficult states of mind. We recognize, we exercise some restraint, and the third step is to reframe our understanding. For many of us, when we feel sleepy, we feel like, well, I can't practice now, I, I need to take a nap, I've, I've got, uh, I can't be mindful when I'm sleepy, I can't be mindful when I have so much anger, 
I can't be mindful when I feel so restless. But we have to reframe our understanding that these experiences are the very place for establishing mindfulness. And if we have that understanding, then we can begin to work with it. We can begin to let it in, so to speak, feel it, and really see, let its true nature be revealed. Not by keeping it away, not by denying it, not by dismissing it, not by acting it out, but by feeling it and letting it reveal itself. In that revealing, we will come to know and realize deeper truths. This too is impermanent, it certainly is unpleasant, and it's not under my control. So these five steps, recognition, restraint, reframing, revealing the nature, and realizing the characteristics, is the process of transforming these obstacles in practice, making them vehicles for mindfulness. I want to give an example of each of these five steps. So you can really see how to use this understanding in your practice tonight, tomorrow. Have you had the experience today? Come in, we sit down, we start paying attention to the breath, you know, and we come back to the breath a few times, and then the bell rings. <laughs> and we say, that was a quick sitting. I wonder what happened. And sometimes we can rack our brain, and we can't remember what was going on for most of that sitting. So what was happening? <coughs> what was happening during that sitting? Were we asleep? Were we drifting? Were we spaced out? Were we spaced in? Were we forgetful? Where, where were we? There certainly was some dullness in the mind. Some lack of recognition of what was going on. It's, it's the most amazing thing. We've all had this experience. It's no secret. One of the things we need to do to begin to confront the power of dullness, sloth and torpor, uh, sleepiness, inertia of the mind, is to get curious. Doesn't, doesn't it make you wonder, where was I? What, what was going on for that 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 45 minutes, however long it was. Albert Einstein said, I think that people generally overestimate me, but I don't consider myself superior or different from any other man or woman. I'm not more gifted than anybody else, 
I'm just more curious and maybe more patient. And he contributed, you know, fantastic understanding of something. (laughs) By being a little more curious and probably a lot more patient. Well, we have the same condition here. If we look with a little more patience, a little more curiosity, what will we actually discover about ourselves, about the nature of our mind, the nature of our body, our emotions, our thoughts, feelings? Joseph spoke the other night about the science and the art of meditation. Or mostly he spoke about the science and didn't have time to talk about the art. But nevertheless... (laughs) What he was trying to say was... (laughs) With this practice, we become scientists of ourself. We study ourself as a scientist studies a specimen in a laboratory. In the middle of the last century, there was a famous Swiss naturalist wrote a book about glaciers what he learned from glaciers by watching them patiently. (laughs) And he came on a speaking tour to America and he was wildly popular talking about this process of observing nature. His name was Louis Agassi. Harvard University invited him to speak and invited him to teach there and he was wildly popular as a mentor for graduate students. And there was some competition to get in, to get him to be their advisor. And I came across this description of one of his students' experience. When the initial interview was at an end, Agassi asked the student when he would like to begin, and the student answered now. Whereupon the student was immediately presented with a dead fish a very long-dead, pickled, evil-smelling specimen personally selected by the master from one of the jars on his shelves. The fish was placed before the student in a pan, and he was told to look at it, whereupon Agassi left and did not return until later in the day. Samuel Scudder, this student, described this experience in this as one of his life's most memorable turning points. He wrote, In ten minutes, I had seen all that could be seen of that fish. (laughs) Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around. I looked it in the face. Ghastly. From behind, beneath, above, sideways, 
at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. I wasn't able to use a magnifying lens as instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now with surprise I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned later and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. <laughs> he continued, I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and when toward its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. The following day, having thought of the fish through most of the night, <laughs> Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course. Of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Look, 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 was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had, a legacy of inestimable value, which he could not buy and with which he could not part. What we're learning to do here is look. Not just for five minutes or a half hour, but day after day, to see, really, what is going on in this specimen. It takes effort. It takes energy. It takes sincerity. It takes some confidence. One of the processes that happens in a retreat like this is the silence, the stillness, the continuity of practice, the regularity of sitting and walking only, builds a container for the development of energy, a tremendous amount of energy that's needed in order to kind of cut through that internal chatter, that narration of how we think things are or how we hope things will be. It takes a tremendous amount of energy, mental energy. And that's what's being developed here. Every leak in the container, a little talk here, a little trip out there, a little uh, you know, nap here and dissipate your energy there, sleep in one morning, go to bed early one night. That's a leak. That lowers the amount of energy, mental energy you have. Now that we're about three days into the retreat, it becomes really important to guard the container of the retreat for yourself, to really protect the momentum of your practice and not let 
the energy leak. And if you're not tired, stay up. If you wake up before the bell rings, get up. Be careful how much you eat and how long you nap. Little things. They're not, they're not big, dramatic gestures. They're just little, extend yourself incrementally into those spaces in your life that you're not yet paying attention. That fish is still there. That mind and body is still there, whether you look or not. Take the opportunity to look. Dullness and sleepiness, inertia, laziness, they're really hard to see. They're hard to recognize. We just skip over them. But it helps to begin to name them, because to name our demons begins to take away their power. And we can begin then to work with sleepiness as a place for actually developing mindfulness by feeling it, opening to it, not just succumbing to it, not just acting it out. Aversion, on the other hand, is very easy to notice because it is so unpleasant. And whether it's um, anger or frustration or despair or depression or self-criticism, whatever your flavor of aversion has been sometime today, it's really noticeable. It, we don't have any trouble knowing that we're, you know, we've got some aversion because it's so unpleasant. After my disastrous first three months with Upandita, I later went to Burma to practice with him some more. And like here, the, the schedule is sit and walk, uh, you know, 20 hours a day. Well, not here, but there it's 20 hours a day. You get four hours to sleep. And for the first couple of weeks, I was really gung-ho and I was noticing that I was doing better. I could sit a little stiller and a little more mindful and was I, I could feel the momentum of uh, mindfulness really growing. And I could talk about my experience. I could see more clearly what was going on and describe my experiences to him. And then one day, after about two weeks, something happened my practice totally fell apart. I couldn't, I couldn't notice a thing. I couldn't, I couldn't be mindful from one moment to the next. I couldn't stay awake. I didn't know what was going on. I was confused. I was just, it was just, I was totally befuddled. It was just completely unlike the first 14 days. At that time, we were reporting to Pandita every day. And so, you know, two o'clock rolled around and I had to go tell him what was going on. And 
every other day that I'd gone in there, I went in confidently, told him what was going on, and he gave me some guidance. I left. And, and this day, I didn't want to go because my practice was really a mess. It was really bad. It was just, I must have did something wrong. I must have done something wrong. So I went in just to the door of his room, and I said, I don't think I'll come to report today. <laughs> and he looked at me surprised. He said, what, what's going on? I said, oh, well, my practice is not very good today. I'll, uh, I'll be back tomorrow. He says, oh, come on, come on, come on in. So I said, well, I, I really don't want to come in. I, I wasn't feeling very confident. But he softened a little bit and encouraged me to come in. And so I went in and did my bows. And he said, well, what's going on? I said, ah, you don't want to know. It's <laughs> not very good. He said, well, just, just tell me. Just, and I said, well, I don't, know, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to tell you. I mean, it's so, uh, it's, it's not familiar. It's so, it's so confusing. It's just, it's not very good. It's just, you know. And he kind of softened a lot. And, you know, like a friendly uncle or something, just said, well, okay, Steve, just tell me what, how's it going for you today? So then I told him. It was chaos. It was a mess. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't note anything. It was just a jumble and all this. And as I was telling him my horrible practice, he lit up. He was so happy. <laughs> And he said, I've been waiting for you to say this. He said, sometimes what you think is good practice, the teacher knows is, well, maybe not so good. And sometimes what you think is really bad practice is really what the teacher's been waiting to hear as good practice. And in that moment, I got, don't judge your own practice. Don't judge it. Whatever's happening, that's just what's happening. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just that's what's happening. Inevitably, we have these imaginations of what good practice should be like, how it should be going on the third day of the retreat. And when our own practice doesn't match our expectations or our hopes or our wishes or what we remember from last retreat, we end up judging ourselves mercilessly, unbelievably. And I know because I've done it a lot. It's a form of aversion. It's a form of pulling away, pushing away from this is the way things are. Notice that. When you find yourself judging yourself, judging your practice, judging your efforts in practice, don't believe it. Just note judging. Whatever's happening is okay. Whatever you're experiencing is fine. Ask yourself, what is it, really? Have the courage to acknowledge to yourself the truth. What is this experience? Not whether it's good or bad, but it's this, that, it's physical, it's mental, it's pleasant, it's unpleasant. 
For some reason, a lot of us with the aversive personality type came to see me today. <laughs> I guess they spotted me. <laughs> anyway, someone asked me, how do I work with this outrageous anger that I have towards everything, everybody here? I want to tell a story. When I was practicing in Burma, there was another monk there, another Western monk from America, who had been there a little while longer than I had, and he was kind of casual in his practice. And when I got there, I was really fired up. I was diligent. And this fellow liked to talk. And I wanted to be silent in practice. But every day he would come to my room and uh, just kind of walk in and start talking. And I got angry. And I said, you know, I tried to tell him, go away. You know, uh, don't talk. I want to practice. And, you know, don't you know we're supposed to be silent and all this? And he, you know, um, just kept talking. So I got angry and just kind of steamed. I tried to endure him patiently, <laughs> wait for him to wear out his welcome and then go. But he still came back. So I tried telling him how uh, upset I was with him coming by, which didn't <coughs> matter to him, apparently. <laughs> so I said, well, if you're going to come by, you can only come by at these times, just before meals or just after, and only for 10 minutes, which also didn't seemed to bother him at all. He didn't seem to hear it. So I was still <coughs> frothing and steaming, so I said, well, the antidote for anger is metta. So when he would come in, I'd just start doing metta. May you be happy elsewhere. <laughs> May you be peaceful in your own room. <laughs> it wasn't real metta, but it was my pretend, <laughs> pretend metta. So, I said, well, this isn't working. Maybe I'll just note standing. When I'm listening to him, I'll just note standing. I won't listen to what he's saying. I'll just note standing. So I tried ignoring him. Standing, standing, standing. And I was still frothing. It wasn't until I actually said, what's going on here? When I acknowledged how angry I felt and then turned my attention to the experience of anger, allowed myself to actually feel it, not just chatter on about some reason he shouldn't be doing what he's doing or whatever, but actually allowed myself to feel the discomfort of anger. And then it just washed through. It just washed through. He comes, he chatters away, there's some discomfort, there's some unpleasantness, and it just washes through. When we open to and allow ourselves to touch, to become intimately familiar with what we have been keeping out, then it passes. We see the truth that this experience doesn't last 
very long. Doubt, another of the most distracting patterns in the mind, totally paralyzes practice. When we have doubt about the practice, about the teacher, about the teachings, about our being here, about our ability to do the practice, we stop. And then we start thinking, of how to solve the problem, whether it's right, whether it's wrong, whether I can, whether I can. And we start acting out doubt by thinking, speculating, ruminating, remembering past retreats. If you find yourself leaking your energy, feeling um, dispirited, doubtful, Withholding your commitment to really make a continuous effort, then look to see if if doubt, some form of doubt, indecision, might be present in the mind. It comes. But when it comes, it totally unplugs us from practice. Because if we don't know if we can do it, we better wait till we know if we can or not before we do it. Or if we don't know if this is really the practice for us, well, we better wait till we find out. <clears throat> Doubt is just another filter over the mind. And when it comes, when it appears, due to its own conditions, due to a long history of habit of indulging in doubt, we don't see it often. We get caught up in trying to decide, is it or isn't it? Can I or can't I? When we open to it and feel it, we can begin to uh, reframe our understanding. This experience can be the foundation for establishing mindfulness, even doubt. Not by trying to figure it out, not by trying to decide, not by trying to affirm a lot of confidence, but by just acknowledging doubt is appearing in the mind. Just being, just opening to the fact, allowing ourselves to feel what doubt feels like. We don't have to agree nor do we have to disagree with the question that doubt asks. We only have to see it as doubt. So be careful if you find yourself caught in this internal debate. Is this the right practice or is that the right practice? Can I do it or can I do it? Am I doing it right or not? Those questions don't need to be answered. If you get caught in trying to answer them, You're being blinded by doubt. 
we have to turn to that very experience of doubt and say, what is this? Oh, this is doubt. What does it feel like? Well, this feels really unpleasant. And then when we do that, we see how insubstantial doubt, as well as any of these other mental states, really is. How flimsy it is. An old Chinese hermit in the 14th century named Stonehouse said, you're bound to become a Buddha if you practice. If water drips long enough, even rock wears through. It's not true thick skulls can't be pierced. People just imagine their minds are hard. Sleepiness, aversion, doubt, restlessness. I spoke earlier about the container of a retreat being a very powerful tool for developing the energy needed in this practice. Developing the mental energy to really see through our aversions, our attachments, our confusions, our delusions, our illusions, and to let go of them. When that energy starts building up, as it is now for many of many of you, it can feel like too much, just too much energy. And often it feels like restlessness. The body and mind are just hyper-energized, or it feels hyper-energized. And even the slightest... Um, distraction or engaging in talking or, or, or activity can really set the energy going in the mind and the body. Be really careful about speaking, talking. But it's that feeling of being overamped that is really just another filter over the mind. Restlessness. A feeling of being plugged into the socket, really. Earlier this year, I did a retreat, a self-retreat at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And one day, or at one point in the retreat, I was just in a dizzying funk. I didn't know what to do. I tried walking, I tried standing, I tried sitting, I tried indoors, outdoors, I tried you know, noting, I tried not noting, I tried noting the breath, I tried noting the sensation, I tried noting thoughts, I tried not noting, I tried choiceless, I tried everything. Nothing worked, so to speak, until I just stood still and didn't try to do anything. And then I felt how much energy there was in the body, in the mind. And in just standing still, in not trying to figure it out, it all settled down. And I could be with just that much energy. But when it was trying to figure it out and I was trying to do something with it, it felt like restlessness. So if you feel really restless, too much energy, 
cultivate and develop stillness. Stand still. Sit still. Not through clamping down, but in a very relaxed, still, a tranquil stillness. And let that energy begin to flow in some more um, flow, period, rather than get jammed up through thinking, trying to manipulate it and use it. The stillness of the body helps still the mind. The last of the most distracting mental states I want to speak about is attachment. Desire, craving, wanting. When attachment as a filter over the mind is present, what we see, we focus on the pleasant aspect of it. We want it. We don't see the unpleasant aspect of things when desire is present in the mind. We see only the pleasant aspect. And so it takes considerable restraint to not pursue that pleasure. We get very little encouragement in our society to exercise restraint in the pursuit of pleasure. But if we do that here, we will continually be distracted. One time, a couple of years ago, I had to fly from the West Coast to the East Coast, and I had an early morning flight. But for some reason, I had to fly the red eye earlier. So I called the airport and said, um, I'd like to fly earlier than my scheduled departure, and I'd like to take this red eye. And they said, oh, there's plenty of seats, no problem, come on down. I got to the airport, and they said, oh, no, that, that plane's full. One of our other flights got canceled. That plane's full. You don't have a chance of getting on that flight. So I said, okay, well, um, I'll fly standby anyway. And just in case there's space, I'd like to go. And by the way, I'm a frequent flyer. I have a lot of miles, premier status. I want that seat if there is one. So... <laughs> they were in a hurry to get that plane out of the gate on time, so they filed everybody onto the plane, and there were a lot of people there. And there were three of us hoping to fly standby. Well, I let the other two know that I had the most frequent flyer miles. <laughs> so after the plane was loaded, they walked the three of us down to the door of the plane, and they said, when we get everybody sit down, we'll see if there are any empty seats. So they were trying to get everybody to sit down. After a while, they said, yeah, it looks like there's one seat way up back there in the middle. So I said, oh, great, I can get on. So I got on, sat down, put my things away, really jammed in there. The plane was totally packed. But I was happy to be on the plane. I had to get to Boston. While I was sitting there finishing my adjustments, they said, oh, there's another seat over there. So the second fellow, who had been waiting to fly standby, got on, and he sat in that seat. I was happy for him. They closed the door of the plane, and we were about ready to back out. Somebody in first class got up 
He said, no, I'm going to get off the plane. Got up, left the plane. <laughs> they called the third person waiting for standby in, set him in first class. <laughs> I was not happy. <laughs> I wanted that first class seat. I was, they wouldn't let me argue. They said, no, sit down. We've got to get out of here. And we're off and you got a seat. Be happy. For the first 20 minutes of that flight, I was in a wreck. I was, a me- I was miserable. I wanted that seat so bad. And then I said, well, all right, what am I going to do? Be miserable for six hours or am I going to sit here and be mindful? <laughs> Probably both. <laughs> but no. I said, well, here I am. Sit down. Paid attention to, allowed that feeling to be there. Just allowed the feeling of wanting that seat to be there. It hurt. <laughs> for a few minutes. And then this, this understanding came. I'm on the plane. I'm going to get to where I need to go on time. I'm still a frequent flyer. I still got all the miles. What? <laughs> what? What am I so upset about? Let it go. Just, just like that. Not, not that I had to force myself to let go. Just let it go. Through seeing how ephemeral all that really is and how unnecessary that suffering is. When we allow ourselves to really open to feel these habits, these blinding, distracting habits of mind, emotions, habits, mental states, gross or subtle, whatever they are, we can realize some profound truths. We don't have to be identified with them. We can be free in the moment that we become aware of them and let them be. Use these understandings in your practice tonight, tomorrow, for the rest of the retreat. Every condition, every experience is workable. Nothing is outside of the field or the scope of mindfulness. Nothing. No matter what you are experiencing can be known noticed, and you can be free of. Wang Po was a Chinese Zen master in the ninth century, and he really understood the nature of the pure mind, the mind that is really seeing clearly, undistracted by anything. And he said, this pure mind which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. 
Your true nature is not lost in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It was never born and can never die. It shines through the whole universe. It is all-pervading, radiant beauty, absolute reality. It is a jewel beyond all price. This pure mind that mindfulness reveals is a jewel beyond all price. So let's sit for a minute. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.